So Lynn, are we all ready to get started? We're ready on the send. Oh, is Dr. Millet on headphones? Yes, he's here. Oh, okay. He is listening at this very moment. Oh, hello. Well, <laughs> in, this, in this very room. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, Mitch, would you like for us to talk for a minute so that you can get some levels? All right. Well, tell me something mundane like what you had for lunch. Were, were you at lunch yet? Yeah, you're an hour behind us, I think. Are you talking to me? Yes. It's down. I can't hear. You want a specific description of my lunch, do you? <laughs> I, I had just, a strawberry. Uh, <laughs> I had a strawberry yogurt. How was that? Uh, well, I <laughs> say you're going to need something more after this is over. <laughs> I just don't want to talk about anything substantive until we're rolling. Um, All right. Mitch, how are you doing? Is that good? Uh, let's. You know, let me just say a little bit. Uh, you know, we were t- we were together on. Um, on a program. Doug Fabricius. Yes, mm-hmm. right, Doug Fabricius program. And I don't know, have you, do you have any questions of me about speaking of faith or? No. Okay. No, I've, I've, I've read your book and enjoyed oh. it. I just went back, I went back today and reread everything I had marked. And, uh, <laughs> good book. Thank you. I oh. agree with you on many, 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 if not most all things. Well, you know, you and I have a, a common friend in Rich Mao. I don't know if I told he's you a, that before. He's a, uh, He's a delightful gentleman, yes, isn't he? Yes, and he's been, uh, and he's been telling me about you for years, and so I finally, finally got into it. And what what I want to say to you about this conversation I want to have is I, I feel like um, there's a lot about <laughs> about your tradition in the news right now, but people are learning mm-hmm. about it kind of backwards. They're learning it through responses to charges and debates. Right. And I would really like, I think we will not mention polygamy. Um, I, I really want to avoid kind of the usual issues. And, mm-hmm. uh, or even, I'm not really interested in having a conversation you, with you about whether Mormons are Christian. Um, right. But I've got this great luxury of a whole hour of radio in which I would like to kind of gain a sense, uh, you know, for myself and for my listeners of Mormonism kind of theologically and spiritually. And I'm interested. Yeah, and I'm interested in your voice, both as a scholar of this faith and a and a practitioner. Okay. Um, so I want to invite you to speak <laughs> speak in both ways. Um, All right. And really, kind of delve into some basic basic theology and spirituality. So okay. Okay. Say, I'm sorry to cut in here. Uh, Lynn, are you still there? I am. And uh, so, are you in the same room? Yes, I am. Okay, and now are both mics open? No. So you're both speaking into the same mic? Uh, no, I just turn my mic on when I speak to you. I see. Okay, and is um, Dr. Millet uh, as close as he can be to that mic? I am hearing that uh, air conditioning noise. I can get closer. Mm, How about yeah, that? Yeah, I warned them Tuesday. Air conditioning is bad here. They've made some changes, and we haven't gotten to fix it yet, and I can't turn the fans off. Okay, that'd be great. I cannot turn the fans off. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, but if uh, Dr. Millet can get any closer, that'd be great. Thank you. Okay. All right. All right. Um, all right. Well, let's just start with language. Um, I, you know, you've written somewhere that you prefer 
not to speak of the Mormon Church or the LDS Church, but of Latter-day Saints or simply the Saints, which I believe is the way a lot of uh, people within the tradition uh, refer to themselves and each other. So talk to me about what these, you know, these different words can note for you. What, what, what is important to you in speaking of Latter-day Saints and of the Saints that's lacking in those other kinds of descriptions? Well, Mormon was first given to us, of course, by critics, but then uh. I, I suppose I suppose that's true with Christianity too. <laughs> uh, first given by critics, uh, those uh, Mormonites we were first called mm-hmm. uh, believers in the Book of Mormon, and um, and and frankly, the uh, the name stuck. And and we're still there's nothing insensitive or offensive about being called a Mormon. Uh, we still refer to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the Mormon Pioneers and and so forth and. And, uh, and and frankly, most people will know us better that way. But um, in an effort to try to uh, get at what the name of the church really is, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. um, that's why we'll, we'll often speak of LDS or Latter-day Saints uh, more than, I will at least, more than Mormon, though I, I certainly use the phrase, the, the, the word. It's, okay. it's not... It's not no, no one is offended by it. Let's put it that way. Okay. And um, I think it's true to say that Mormonism is not a faith uh, built on the impulse to reformation, like um, much of Protestant Christianity, but on an impulse to restoration. How would you tell that story or explain what that means? Yeah, I, I, I think... I think from an LDS perspective, what we're saying is this, that for us, the Reformation of the 16th century was a, was a godsend in the sense that, uh, that many things that people perceive to be out of line or off the, the path of, of original Christianity needed correcting. But we feel that the Reformation did not go, go far enough in terms of the restoration to primitive Christianity. The 19th century, very characterized by groups rising up and desiring to get back to the first century church. And um, whether it was the, the disciples of Christ under Alexander Campbell or the, or the Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. For that matter, the idea of restorationism is even found among some of the speeches and writings of the founding fathers. Uh, some of whom were, were called restorationists because they weren't quite pleased with the way things were in the Christian church. Mm-hmm. And and there really was this, the part of the vision was was um, that this church would be in line with, with the original Christianity of the first century in a way. Yes. Right? In a way perhaps yeah. that the Reformed churches weren't seen to be at that time. Well, what, what uh, one thing in particular, and, and if I were pressed, uh, Krista, to say, what area is is most significant about what the Latter-day Saints called the Restoration? I think I would have to say it's the authority, the priesthood area, mm-hmm. um, because while the concept of a priesthood of all believers made its way into Christianity following Luther and, and uh, Calvin and others, uh, Latter-day Saints hold tenaciously to the idea that it was by priesthood power that Jesus operated, and it was by priesthood power that the apostles did what they did, and and so on, and and uh, and that it's one thing for Luther to do the good he did in terms. Let's just picking him mm-hmm. uh, to do the good he did in, in terms of theology, a greater emphasis upon grace, and less upon uh, 
upon the works of the church, a greater emphasis upon Bible reading, and, and, uh, and, 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 and of course, condemning practices that he felt were not truly Christian. It's another thing for an Augustinian monk um, to suddenly um, say, we're all, as followers of Christ, holders of the priesthood. We're a priesthood of all believers. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a major move because it, 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 it immediately cuts a line that had run back, presumably, to the time of Jesus. And, um, and to say, therefore, that we don't need uh, a priestly hierarchy uh, that's a bold statement. It's one thing to say, I'm concerned with some of the doings or beliefs of the priestly hierarchy. It's another thing to say, we don't need one. And mm-hmm. so one of the most fundamental uh, restoration items for Mormons is the concept of a restoration of divine authority priesthood. Okay. And tell me something, just a little bit about the beginnings of your story in this faith. I believe, is it right that you were raised um, in the I was raised States? LDS, Absolutely. but I, was, mm-hmm. I grew up uh, not in Mormon territory. I grew up in Louisiana. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so most of my friends were Roman Catholics and Southern Baptists. And, right. uh, and, and, I, and I sort of feel that that has something to do with why I've chosen in the last 10 years to, to spend a great deal of time in, in the area of outreach and interfaith relations, probably because I've sensed the goodness and the and the integrity and the warmth of people of other faiths, and uh, because many of them are my relatives. My mother was a Methodist. My mm. my cousins were were uh, Pentecostal holiness and uh, are now Pentecostal holiness ministers, mm. and uh, and so it, it's maybe it's the way I was brought up. I I never doubted, but that God heard their prayers like He heard my prayers, and I never doubted that they were any less devoted to Jesus than I was. And right. so, so was your uh, father it, a Mormon, it, and your mother uh, converted to the faith? She was. Mm-hmm. My mom was converted about the time I was nine, and dad dad had been raised in the church. His father had joined the church near New Orleans in about uh, the nineteen thirties. So, if I just ask you. Um, and I'll just tell you, I, I often ask this kind of question of people, whatever we're talking about. You know, <laughs> I'm talking okay. to, a, to a quantum physicist, but we're talking about how religion or spirituality intersect with that. So, you know, if I ask you about um, how you remember, you know, what was important, that, that spiritual core of your faith. How do you think about this tradition in terms of what, what, you, what you grew up in um, as a child that formed you? Yeah, um, we were not always active Latter-day Saints in terms of actively participating. I actually started school in Nashville, Tennessee, hmm. and uh, and so I remember going to vacation Bible school with my with my Baptist <laughs> friends, and uh, I think that's another facet, you know. That, yeah. But I but I but I always grew up with uh, a belief in a God, and and I, and I think I always felt the uh, divinity of Jesus. I can't remember a time when I didn't feel that because I think I was taught Bible stories uh, from the time I was old enough to hear them. And and the earliest, the earliest memories I have were not just doctrinal or theological issues that bring warmth to my soul now. It's, it's community. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a body of believers that I came to love and admire and appreciate. It's 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 uh, lay ministry where the person, you know, above and beyond job and and home, they're they're spending their hours um, teaching or or building a new church or whatever it was. I, I I think back on those times and 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 I'm warmed by that experience. The 
the idea. Back then, uh, members of a local congregation were expected to raise a portion of the funds for the construction of a meeting house. Hmm. And so we, I mean, I can't count how many chicken dinners and spaghetti <laughs> dinners and, and uh, donut sales and you name it. We, we did it. Uh, cleaning the LSU football stadium. Now, there's one for you. Uh, uh, and, and, and saving the money so that we could put forward our percentage of the, of the money to be used for rearing a chapel. And that, uh, I, can't, I can't visit that building now without realizing that a portion of me hmm. is in that building. And that, and that at, the, at the core of my belief and my commitment to the LDS faith is the fact that I gave myself in those early years to projects and to ideas and to, and to working with people who loved what I loved. Uh, and so that, that to me, is, is at the heart of it. I, the earliest memories I have are communal memories. They're, they're memories with good people. They're memories with people who believed in what they did. And I think that that, um, that example, that kind of witness of strong community and strong family, is very much a part of, of the appeal that this tradition is having for people yeah, um, I think that's right. Globally, right? In addition to or sometimes maybe even before any kind of doctrinal or theological um No, I think that's right. I think people feel something among the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they People uh, leave church and they say, well, it may have been a little irreverent because there were so many little kids, and, <laughs> but, 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 but they were rather taken with the people. All right. And so, you know, I just want to ask you before we really kind of get into some theology, I mean, is there, how do you think about what are the religious or even theological underpinnings of those of these this very strong human relationship and communal relationship that emerges where wherever Latter-day Saints are found sure I don't know that all Latter-day Saints would answer this way but as I look back on it Chris I, I kind of think looking at it now from the theologian's perspective I look at, I think that what's gone on is a person has come into the faith they've had a, a, a rebirth if you will a, a new a change in their heart, and consequently they become committed to that faith, but they also become more people conscious, more people aware. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I, th- I think there are probably uh, theological underpinnings to the way we live. In other words, we can we can give, and people have requested, we can give instructions on how to conduct a Monday family home evening, you know? Right. We can give instructions on how to how, how we can make how to make your young people's program successful, but it doesn't quite work without the theological underpinnings. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. You can, in other words, there right. there's no formula for how to do it and make it work without the doctrine. Mm-hmm. Well, let you know. Let's let's get into that. Let's let's talk about that. Um, let's talk about you know your your image of God. Um, I, I think there's been a lot of there's been a lot of talk in our culture uh, recently about G, the different different understanding tangents of Jesus, or is there a different understanding right. within the Latter Day Saints right. and within you know mainline Protestant Christianity? But you know, I'm very intrigued as I as I get into the literature and read your books that you know there really is quite a um, a very particular way of thinking about the nature of God. Um, mm-hmm. You know that you know the Hebrew Bible and I think a lot of people don't don't realize this who haven't studied theology that that there are different names for God in the original Hebrew in the Bible and yeah. and mm-hmm. within Christian and Jewish scholarship, you know, many scholars believe that these different names uh, 
represent different editors of those of those texts across time. But my understanding is that for Mormons, you know, those different names of God are really about distinct manifestations of God, or it's distinct gods. Talk, explain it to yeah. me. It's very interesting. Well, so Elohim example, is God the Father, right? Sure. Elohim mm-hmm. would be God the Father. Jehovah or Yahweh would mm-hmm. be uh, would be the pre-mortal Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. It would be... Uh, it would be the John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That would, that would be the Jehovah who was with Elohim. Now, we're aware that Elohim is a generic word, a Hebrew word, meaning God, gods, literally, I guess. And, um, but those are the names that we, we refer to the, the, with the Holy Spirit as the members of the Godhead. Mm-hmm. And God, Elohim, God the Father, you understand to be a corporeal being. Uh, who was mm-hmm. once a man, like us? Yeah, uh, yeah. Let Correct me address me when I when I need correcting. No, yeah. what I want to do is I want to address what I think we know and what I think we don't know. Okay. On the first part, yes, and this this is a very interesting phenomenon. I know even as a young missionary, when I would explain to people that Joseph Smith taught that God the Father had a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. It's very interesting, Krista, that how few people reacted adversely, uh, who, who said, my goodness, that's heresy. Hmm. Uh, in fact, how many people said, well, yeah, I, I guess I've always sort of thought of it that way. Hmm. In other words, in, I think many people, in an effort to um, try to bring some kind of image in their minds to deity, no one wants to feel they're praying to a force. Right. Imagine a person. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. a, a gas. They mm-hmm. imagine a person, of mm-hmm. course. A father. And the only figure. kind of person they know is a, is a person who has substance and form. Mm-hmm. And, and so the notion that we teach that God is corporeal or physical um, doesn't usually strike people terribly. It does our critics and I want to come back to that too, by the way. But 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 it doesn't strike an interested, curious seeker uh, as overly odd because they they often comment, "Well, I think I've sort of sort of anticipated that." Now the critics will often say, uh, "No, you, you, that can't be the case because physicality uh, limits deity." Well, my response to that: Well, what is the incarnation all about? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus took a body, you know. But I mean, and and again, I really, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'll be saying what I think I understand, and I and I want you to fill in the picture. My my sense okay. is that that the that this understanding of God is that, um, as is as God as some kind of a, as a product of something like a spiritual a spiritual evolution of God who was once a man, and and has moved and moved into um, this very different kind of Godhead. being, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Joseph Smith taught that in 1844, and uh, other presidents of the church, like Lorenzo Snow, uh, uh, taught taught about it. But, you know, it's talked about so little, mm. um, so f- infrequently. I hear, I hear much, much more f- of that teaching from those who are outside the LDS faith than I do from people within. Mm-hmm. And I guess the answer is for this. Do I believe that? Yes, because I, I think it's part of the faith. But it's, 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 rather, it's rather theologically tangential in the sense that 
we believe he's a man. What what went on before he was God, we just have no idea. In and, other words, yeah. that, 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 that lies in the realm of the mysterious for us, just mm-hmm. as the final explanation for Trinity would with traditional Christians. So, I mean, I wonder when you were going to Sunday school with your Methodist cousins, when you were growing up, you know, it seems to me that in some traditions, and I think this varies across the different Christian traditions, and as, as do images of Jesus, but words like almighty and transcendent that would be associated mm-hmm. With, mm-hmm. with God the mm-hmm. Father, um, it, it, was your sense of it a little bit different? You know, oddly enough, no. Uh, people ask me that frequently. Well, d- d- does, not, does not the belief in a, in a corporeal deity cause you to think of him as a finite being? Right. And my answer, my answer is no, not at all. Why? Because obviously the Bible, the New Testament in particular, but also the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price speak of his his infinity, his uh, him, him, him being possessor of all divine attributes and perfection. And so, in a way that I can't quite comprehend, yes, I believe the former, but the latter, that is his, his, his transcendence, his power, his majesty, his, his possession of the omnis, if you will, mm, are, all, right. uh, are all there in my head. Okay. And, uh, and I don't have difficulty with that at all. In fact, what I do find is this. I find a deeper sense of closeness Rich Mao uh, from Fuller Seminary, uh, the president there, Rich and I have had long talks about this, and, and Rich made the comment once that he, he could understand why a Mary Baker Eddy and a Joseph Smith, in their own distinctive ways, would attempt to, to retrieve God from the kind of Neoplatonic distance hmm. that had been created through the years uh, by a, a high Calvinism. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Right. Where, where, where God is sort of um, the unknown, the unknowable, the untouchable, the, the incomprehensible, mm-hmm. uh, we be, the via negativa. Well, all we can do is talk about what we don't know. Uh, Joseph Smith comes onto the scene, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't make him into a human being, but he says, no, he's knowable. He's comprehensible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I think what that, ha- that creates with Latter-day Saints is a greater sense of closeness um, with with the attending um, caution that occasionally one's um, feelings of closeness could result, and I think it does sometimes, in a lack of awe that is that is more uh, prevalent in uh, more high church settings. Do, do you know what I mean? Right. I think Latter Day. I'm gonna put it this way, and I, I'm just speaking as me. I don't think Latter Day Saints do awe as well as my. <laughs> my uh, Calvinistic friends or my uh, Orthodox friends or some of my Roman Catholic friends. I don't think we do awe quite as well. And, you know, I think some kinds of Christians um, find in the figure of Jesus, through the figure of Jesus, that closeness to God, right? That that sense of God made flesh, you know, to to take the Gospel of John. Now... um, as you said, you know, there, there is the teaching in the New Testament that uh, through him all things were made, right? John 1, um, right. that Jesus as logos, as the word. But it seems to me that, you know, in some ways, e- even as you, someone might read a simple explanation of this and say that God is less exalted, I would say that in some ways this, your understanding of Jesus seems to be 
a more exalted, I mean, you very much stress God, Jesus, as in fact originally Yahweh or Jehovah, who is already there in the beginning, the early chapters of Genesis, the God of the ancients, in fact, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me say it this way. Okay. Krista, I was, in, I was in a meeting, uh, oh, maybe a year ago with uh, one of the Mormon apostles, present-day leaders of the church, and uh, a group of, uh, with a group of about 20 evangelical pastors. We just went to California at Biola University, and uh, we held a meeting there with local prominent pastors. And just, just to become better friends, to let them ask whatever questions they wanted to ask, and, uh, and the, the apostle and I just sort of fielded the questions, and one of the questions that came up, interestingly enough, uh, this will have very recent application. One of the uh, one of the heads of Calvary Chapel said, "Now, Elder So and So, isn't it true that you believe that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the, and I the was very that in- Mike Huckabee made recently. That's that right. That was Mike mm-hmm. Huckabee's remark the mm-hmm. other day. And, I, and I, I was very interested to see how he would respond. I had responded in times past, but I thought his, his response was fascinating. He said this. He said, well, it is true. You need to understand we believe that before we were born, we all, not just Jesus, but that we all lived in a pre-mortal existence. Mm-hmm. And yes, Jesus and Lucifer, he said, were in that world together. But then he said this rather emphatically. He said, but let me be straightforward on this. Jesus was God, and there was never a time when he and Lucifer were on hmm. the same plane. Okay. Now, that's a, kind of, that's a kind of mystery in itself for us, if you will, uh, Krista, because it's, we believe that Jesus is the, f- Jehovah was the firstborn spirit son of God. And of yet the Father God of Elohim, right? Of Elohim. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and yet we believe that, that Jesus... I know became, the word became make, makes people very nervous, but I don't know any other word to use, became God and, and uh, was with God and was God. We have no problem with John 1. The Book of Mormon, in fact, on the title page calls him the eternal God. And so and the that's, idea that's is, where we are. The teaching is um, that, that Yahweh um, chose to, became, to become human, to become Jesus of Nazareth. That's correct, and become this and uh, and save uh, mankind, and and the theology then I think this doctrine of atonement is very much like no. what you would find in mainline Christianity. That is correct. We would we would teach the atonement much like uh, many of our Christian friends would. Okay. And and that and that so and there are teachings, right? Stories about um, encounters in that premortal realm where where God. Decide, you know, makes this choice to become Jesus. Is that right? To become Jesus of Nazareth and take human form. That's correct. Mm-hmm. That would be found, for example, in our Pearl of Great Price, one of our books of Scripture, where 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 um, the Father Elohim asked the question, "Whom shall I send?" Uh, very similar oh, okay. language to Isaiah. Okay, mm-hmm. whom shall I send? And the response is, uh, "Father, Thy will be done, and the glory be Thine forever." And meaning by that, that Latter-day Saints believe that the plan of God, the plan of salvation, that Jesus, Jehovah, became the, the, uh, the greatest proponent of that plan and, and, and volunteered to put it into place and set all the terms and conditions in place, including the recognition that because men and women would fall, there would be a need for a Redeemer, and he volunteered to do that. Okay. 
And you do, as you mentioned, you do see men and women um, as spirit sons and daughters of God. And um, talk to me about this, the, the idea of the pre-mortal existence, that life on earth is a second estate, but there's a first yes. estate in which yes. we <laughs> are prepared spiritually for, for life on yeah. earth. Yeah, there, there used to be a film that the church produced called Man's Search for Happiness, and some of the lines went like this. You did not suddenly just flare into existence at the time of birth, but rather you have always lived. For us, that answers many of the questions that people often have relative to a, a sense or a feeling of another time and another place, hmm. a kind of spiritual deja vu, if you will. Hmm. Um, the, the, the feelings that people, we, we would not believe, for example, in the reincarnation of souls, but we would believe that people's sense that they once uh, lived before is a very real sense and uh, and that that's what that was about that that we prepared there for here and um, and that that idea you know one of my colleagues uh, Terrell Givens at uh, at uh, in Virginia um, Terrell um, is just finishing a book with Oxford on the the prevalence of the notion of pre-existence across cultures Mm-hmm. And uh, while it while it was condemned by the well, I guess the fifth or sixth century uh, by the Mother Church, it is found throughout cultures all over the world the idea of a of a life before life. It's it's also I mean it echoes very much with other traditions like I don't know Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I th- and I think the way it affects me uh, most, uh, Krista, is this. I I was thinking about this the other day. I was. I was in a subway in New York City not long ago, and and it was 5.30 in the afternoon, and it was just <laughs> packed. Bodies just squeezed together like uh, sardines. And yet, in a, in a fleeting moment, I looked around at these people, and I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the impact that a belief in a pre-mortal existence has upon me. Suddenly, I found myself thinking a little deeper than than I had during the day, and I found myself reflecting. God loves that man as much as he loves me. He's his son, just as I am. She's his daughter. And these are my brothers and sisters. And, 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 and of course, for Latter-day Saints, m- most, most religions might be prone to refer to one another as my brothers and sisters. But we do it in a much more literal sense. Right. And, it, and so well, it's bring, both cosmic it, and literal. It, it is. Uh-huh. It is. It, it brings a sense of kinship, the, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man concept that we've heard for years. It's, it just comes court of, sort of naturally with the turf for Latter-day Saints. You know, you quoted in um, in your book on the Mormon faith, um, yeah. which I found very helpful. Um, you okay. quoted the church's first presidency in 1909, and uh, this, the statement was that the doctrine of preexistence, revealed so plainly, particularly in the latter days, pours a wonderful flood of light upon the otherwise mysterious problem of man's origin. And, and I, I found that a very evocative statement. I'm not sure I understand it. Is, <laughs> is this doctrine illuminating for you in terms of um, the mysterious problem of man's origin? Well, it is in this sense that, I mean, I have, we've had, my wife, Sean, and I have had six children. We now have seven grandchildren. And I, I, and you know this, you, you're a mother. 
children are as different as night and day. <laughs> yes. I mean, we, we got the first one raised uh, for at least up a little bit, and we thought, well, we've got this down. Mm-hmm. Along comes the second one, who is as different as he can be. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea that we lived before we came... The idea that I that I that I before I was born and or before my children or grandchildren were born that they were real actual personalities, and that to some extent they bring those personalities and attributes and qualities and characteristics with them, that that has a sobering effect on parenthood. <laughs> you know, I I look at I look at my my children very differently than if I just believe they were born. They came along at the time of their birth, hmm. and so it has a it 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 has a, a kind of an eternalizing effect upon family relationships. Right. Uh, the ability to see my children as someone who, for all I know, could have very well been my superior in another world in <laughs> another time and place, and so I'd better treat them properly. Um, uh, definitely, they're in that spiritual sense, my brothers and sisters. Do you hmm. see what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, you also wrote somewhere that the family is the most important unit in time or eternity. Is, yeah. is this the, Is that the theological, kind of the religious underpinning of that? Linked, linked with pre-mortal existence is the concept that for us, eternal life or exaltation consists of gaining and acquiring divine Christian attributes through the power of the atonement and by the Spirit over time such that one day I feel comfortable and pleasant and joyous dwelling in the presence of God and Christ with my family. And so the continuation of the family unit into eternity as well as the premortal existence of men and women, those those both point toward the central nature of family, that that once we get beyond the central teaching of all our faith, which is Jesus Christ, the central teaching of his atoning sacrifice, and that the redemption and the plan are centered in him, you'll find Latter-day Saints turning rather quickly if you say, what comes next in importance? They'll say, well, family's pretty high. And, um, I mean, I know that, that Jesus is the Son of God, but is there also in Mormon teaching... Um, a sense of God having a family in this human sense? Uh, in this sense, for us, being born again is, of course, there's a passage in the Book of Mormon where uh, a great old king is coming to the end of his life and he preaches a powerful sermon that is really a very Christian sermon in the sense of uh, the need to put off the natural man and put on Christ. And the people are deeply touched and say, we, we enter into a covenant that we're going to do our best to keep the commandments of God for the remainder of our days. And then if I can remember the words, he says, because of the covenant which you've made, you shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he has begotten you and you have become his sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. And so the concept of, of spiritual rebirth is tied, linked to the notion of becoming uh, a member of the family of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that he becomes our hope for salvation and our source of power and strength. Is there any kind of heavenly reflection of the maternal or mother uh, mother role or mother figure? There is. There is within Mormonism, although we know very little about this too. 
the concept of a mother in heaven. Okay. Uh, it was first presumably taught by Joseph Smith, though we can't find it in any sermons, but was reflected in a hymn written by Eliza R. Snow entitled, Oh My Father, uh, in which she speaks of not only a father, but a mother there. You won't hear Latter-day Saints talking a great deal about it because we don't know much about it. Okay. But, but uh, yeah, the family order, what we would say is the family order on this earth is but a reflection of the family order as it existed before we came to this earth. You know, I read an article, um, I have not read this in any, in any of your writing or, or any of the, the general pieces I've re- read about um, Latter-day Saints theology, but I did read in an, an article, another journalist was with Gordon Hinckley, who mm-hmm. is, what is his precise title? The He's president, president of the church. Mm-hmm, president mm-hmm. of the church. And he was talking about wh- how when, when Latter-day Saint children come of age, they are bestowed, a blessing is bestowed on them that foretells their future um, is, is, was that a, was that correct reporting? You know what it is. It's a it, it's a it's called a patriarchal blessing, and it date you know as far as scripture goes, our our antecedent for it would be the the kind of blessing that Abraham gave his children, or more particularly the way Jay's, uh, Jacob blessed all of his his twelve uh, sons with 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 patriarch patriarchal blessing, a family type blessing, and. And so, yes, a young person reaches an age where they're where they're getting a little serious about spiritual things. They may go to one of the positions in the priesthood in our church is the position of patriarch, a calling. And the patriarch is responsible to pronounce what we call patriarchal blessings. I received mine when I was about 14 years of age, probably not quite mature enough. Do you still uh, recall it? Was that a very Oh, I, re- I remember it with, because that is a, a pretty big thing in Mormonism, I, I recall it very clearly, and I'm 60 years old, mm-hmm. so I remember it very well. Did it and, tell uh, you something uh, about yourself that, in fact, you realized that you saw the truth of later? No question about it. It, it uh, for example, foretold the fact that... Uh, uh, I would serve as a common judge in Israel. Now, a common judge in Israel is a is a bishop from our perspective, and I've served as bishop twice. That a bishop is, a, as you know, a, a pastor of a congregation. Secondly, uh, things within it concerning I went on and on and on about me teaching hmm. the gospel and teaching scriptural principles. Which at the time, you know, sounded nice at fourteen, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but of course, that's how they, I spend my life. Spend life. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's a very precious thing, in the sense that not so much in the sense that it, it's not like a fortune telling episode, so much as it is a blessing where one who has the spirit of prophecy, uh, and we're believers in spiritual gifts, one who has the spirit of prophecy uh, can help a person gain perspective on their on who they were, who they are, and who they may become. I don't look back on my patriarchal blessing, and I read it quite often, and members are encouraged to. Hmm. I read it often for perspective. I read it often for putting things in place, um, kind of seeing my purpose in life, if you will. And I, and I think most members of the church would say that. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think maybe I wonder if... Um the way you this this notion of premortal existence that you hold um mm-hmm. 
if that also adds another layer of complexity to the kind of theodicy question that that Christians in particular ask. So, you know, the question is, if there is a God, you know, why is there so much excess and suffering and violence in human life? And if you, because my understanding is there's a sense that we are preparing, that human beings are preparing in that primordial existence for life on there. So how do you, how do you think about that contradiction? Yeah, I think there's a, I think, I think, I think that the notion of a premortal ex- existence uh, um, buttresses any effort toward theodicy, that is, explaining the problem of evil and suffering. And, for example, um, the idea that in that premortal world we were taught uh, concerning the plan of, of salvation by God, the idea that there was given to us agency, moral agency, and that that, and and that from an LDS perspective, the war in heaven, as described in Revelation 12, that the war in heaven was literally fought over the issue of whether men and women should have moral agency. Hmm. We believe that Lucifer stepped forward and said, I will save them all. Jesus, the, the foremost proponent of the Father's plan, said, no, I think we have to be realistic and realize that some of the Father's children will not choose the gospel plan and will be lost. Well, anyway, we believe that agency, moral agency, the right to choose, is so significant that God will not violate it. Okay. And, 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 and thus, in spite of something as horrific and horrendous as a holocaust or or any any tragedy you can think of the question is one of, if the question is one of could god prevent it or could he have prevented it well of course he could but the question of why do such things happen you know i i had a heart attack in 2001 and it was and, and it was a it was a close shave mm. uh, the doctor said one minute if you'd come one minute later we would have lost you mm. well i it never occurred to me after the heart attack, when I was in probably the best physical condition of my life, it never occurred to me to say, why me? Why would this happen to me? I'm right in the middle of, I'm at the prime of my whatever. <laughs> it never occurred to me. And the reason it never did is because the answer for me is it's part of life. It comes with the turf. We live in a world that that isn't quite what it ought to be. Uh, Okay. Uh, Neil, Pla- Neil Plantinga wrote that fun book a while back called "It's Not the Way It's Supposed to Be," hmm. and and I, and it's it's dealing with sin, and and I think we have to admit that 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 allowing agency is vital but costly, and and for for us then, though we can't answer all the hard questions, some of them are addressed by a belief that moral agency antedates this life. Okay. I'd like to also ask you about um, angels. There's quite a developed understanding Mm -hmm. within Latter-day Saint theology of angels. Now, Joseph Smith, um, in 1823, uh, reported being visited by the angel Moroni. Is that how you say it? Moroni? Mm -hmm. That's how you say it. Mm -hmm. Is is that the origin of, is that that where angels enter into um, the the core of this faith? mm -hmm. Probably the first reference to it historically. Yes, Joseph Smith put forward a, a belief in angels that's quite different from, let's say, traditional Christianity or, or Judaism. Um, 
for us, angels are not a different creation than human beings. And that is... Explain that. What does that mean? Yeah. What that means is angels may take the form. They may be persons who have not yet lived as a mortal. They may be persons who have lived as a mortal and who are allowed to return. In other words, they can be both unembodied and disembodied persons that Mm -hmm. appear, or they could be persons who come back with a physical body, uh, resurrected beings. So, you know, if Jesus were to appear to someone, he, uh, uh, in an an angel form, meaning as a messenger, uh, bringing a message, then, you know, he would be embodied. But, uh, and, and so for us, angels are not a different realm of creation. Um, for us, if if someone appears to me to give instructions, warning, whatever, from the other side of the veil uh, that separates this world from the next, um, it would not be, uh, it would be someone who had lived hmm. or will live. So I, I think you're starting to answer the next question I asked, which is, you know, as a 21st century person, in fact, as a 21st century intellectual living in the West, I mean, how do you live with this as a, as a piece of religious truth, as a reality? How does that manifest itself? Well, um, truth comes in all kinds of forms. I mean, for me, you know, there's clearly truth that comes by, by way of study and reason, and that's very significant. Truth comes by way of of uh, of by way of faith, and that is to say that I come to know some things, sense some things, some realities that are beyond the the senses, that are not empirically provable. Uh, truth take uh, truth can come to me uh, as a Christian might say through the witness of the Spirit, or truth can come to me. It could come to me, I could say, in the form of the the ministry of an angel that might be seen or unseen. Um, and so that, that's just one means by which God manifests his will to people on earth. Now, living in our day, how do, how do, I, how do I view those things? Well, I, I take them very seriously. I've never seen a, or felt a contradiction between, personally between uh, science and religion or technology and, and spiritual manifestations. Uh, because I guess I'm able to, to say that not everything's been discovered and not everything's been revealed. And so uh, no one can really speak with the authority to say this is all that is. Mm-hmm. And the only world there is is the naturalistic world. Or the only world there is is the supernaturalistic world. Right. <laughs> and so, I mean, do you, have you, would you say that in your lifetime you've encountered angels or that you've had experiences that you later explained in that way? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I've, I, I'll just say it this way, that um, my grandfather was a very noble and God-fearing man and um, a, great, a great preacher. For, to, to, be, to be a lay minister, as it were, he was a, he was a fabulous pulpit-pounding preacher. <laughs> and, um, I had one of those, too, by the way. Did you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Grandpa. Right? <laughs> yeah, gra- yeah, well, Grandpa came yeah. out, of, out of Catholicism, but he loved listening mm-hmm. to Baptist sermons, and, right. it, and it showed in his sermons. Mm-hmm. And then and did he I become Mormon? Was he Mormon? He became he a Latter-day Saint uh-huh. in the 1930s, and he became a pulpit-pounding Latter-day Saint <laughs> is what he became. Okay. And uh, I, uh, you know, I, you know, there's some things that are very personal, but I, I have felt Grandpa's influence through the years. My father passed away 
1988, and uh, Dad and I were very, very close. I don't have any hesitation in saying that I believe that Dad continues to live, that I believe in the immortality of a soul, and that, and I guess I would say it this way, a friend of mine told me that when his grandfather was getting very aged, he called the family together and, and to bid goodbye because he knew he was going to pass soon. And he said to them, and this would be, I think, a very typical LDS way of looking at things, he said, I'm going to die soon, but when I die, I shall not cease to love you. I shall not cease to pray for you, and I shall not cease to minister in your behalf. Now, we take that seriously. Um, and so I, I, I think I could say, because my dad continued to live in Louisiana, and I left Louisiana and came west, as it were, uh, and we would see them once or twice a year, I think I could honestly say that my dad's influence in the last 20 years has been far greater than it was in the 20 years before he died. Hmm. And, and and I say that not to be mystical, not no, to I be... No, I know. These things are hard to talk about. But, and they yet are. I think many people will hear this and have had experiences that echo, whether they of explained course. it the same way or not. Mm-hmm. I, I, my, my youngest son, no, excuse me, my oldest son was on an LDS mission in Brazil. And and just, he, he told me when he came home, he said, Dad, I can't tell you the number of times... I felt Grandpa's influence. Now, I hadn't spent a lot of time saying, oh, by the way, Dave, get ready. Grandpa's going to really help you on your mission. Mm-hmm. I mean, that wasn't something I would do. But he, he, he made that comment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, it's something we take very seriously that, that when people die, I mean, I, as my wife was driving me very quickly to the hospital at the time I was having a heart attack, I have to tell you, I... I really didn't feel any fear at all, Krista. I, I wasn't afraid of dying. I have to be honest and say I didn't particularly want to. I wanted to stick around and be with my family more. But it's interesting what you think about most when you're at that stage. When I knelt beside my dad's bed in his closing hours, he had been a very successful businessman, a very successful church leader, beloved by so many people. I kept trying to talk to him about how how much difference he'd made in the world. And he wouldn't have any of that. He didn't want to talk about that. He wanted to talk about me and my wife and my children. Hmm. And that's all he wanted to deal with. And uh, because that's what mattered to him the most at that, at that moment. And, uh, and I cannot imagine that when I die, whenever that is, that I will stop feeling and thinking toward those I loved that I spent 30, 40, 50, 60 years loving here. And so... An LDS perspective would be: we do not, we not only don't, don't uh, cut off all relationships at death, but that we seek to be worthy of having those relationships continue after death. And and oddly enough, strangely enough, you would know, like I know, that while there may be no doctrinal teaching found in a Protestant or a Catholic um, theology concerning the continuation of family after this life that that idea is is predominant in most funeral addresses. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Right, right. Pe- people do it almost by, by rote because it's just part of what, in their heart of hearts, they sort of want to believe. And yet I think that within your tradition, there... There, you know, some of these beliefs are are form formalized, and you you have rituals yeah. that go along with them, and and a lot of that happens in the temple. Is that right? 
That's right. Um, the temple is the place where, differing from a, a meeting house or a church house, where ordinances or sacraments are performed, uh, not only for time but for eternity, including both the sealing of a husband and a wife and a family, but also, and this is where one of the most unusual and often criticized uh, of our beliefs, the doctrine of, of work in behalf of the dead mm-hmm. takes place. So that if my father, for example, oh, I can put it this way. My grandfather, my wife's mother, died a Methodist. Now, we believe that when he goes into the next world, the world of spirits, the post-mortal existence, that he will be given a, a further opportunity to receive as much truth as he's willing to receive. And that that's a, that's a personal choice. That's, a, that's his agency. He may choose to remain just who he is, where he is, and and stick with what he believes. But if he should choose to learn more, we believe that opportunity would be provided. And we therefore perform what are called vicarious ordinances, sacraments, for for people who have gone on. I was I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana when the Baton Rouge LDS temple was dedicated mm-hmm. several years back, and one of the first things I did was I performed ordinances on behalf of my grandfather. Now, do you understand the discomfort that people have with that, and, and how do you respond do. to that? I do. I understand that that in many people's, uh, for, in other words, for many people, it represents, uh, but I died a Baptist, I want to stay a Baptist. <laughs> and my response okay. is, well, of course, you can stay a Baptist if you choose to. Uh, obviously, this was a very, has been a very touchy issue with, with uh, Jew, the Jewish mm-hmm. faith. Uh, one man said to me, it's, it's a spiritual holocaust. Hmm. Well, we don't want anybody to feel that way, and that's why the LDS Church has backed off of, of doing any work for Holocaust victims. Uh, but, of course, I understand the discomfort. But I'll tell you what I, I think it does provide, Krista, that is not readily accessible, and it's been a part of our faith from the very beginning. I think it is the best possible answer to the question that is right up there with the problem of evil, and that's the the soteriological problem of evil. Namely, if you're Christian and if you believe that salvation comes only in Jesus and his name and power, then what of the bulk of humanity that will go to their graves without ever having heard of him? Mm-hmm. And so the concept that life continues beyond this life, that learning continues after this life, and that the opportunity to receive requisite ordinances may continue after this life. And that those who are still in this life can engage. Perform them. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's, I mean, I've read a lot of books on that on that issue, and, and, and people wrestle and wrestle with that. I mean, some say, well, they, they take a rather agnostic position of, I just don't know, but surely God's merciful and he'll provide a way. <laughs> others, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and others say, well... Um, I read one Roman Catholic position that says that uh, from my vantage point, when, uh, when every person, before every person dies, perhaps at the time of death, they will have a, either a vision of Christ or an angel, which will present to them the opportunity. Well, see, our idea is not too far off from those kinds of ideas, and that did, God has a way. And did this approach also originate from revelations that came to Joseph Smith? Are these things he saw um, that's, and that's reported? Correct. Okay. It actually came, the, the, the beginnings of it came in, in 1836 with uh, an experience he had, he reports, being in the Kirtland, Ohio Temple, which still still stands. And um, 
it was not yet finished as far as being completed, the building, but, but they were meeting in it nevertheless. And in a meeting upstairs, Joseph Smith reported seeing a vision in which he saw, it's called the vision of the celestial kingdom, the highest heaven. Joseph said he saw Father Abraham and he saw Adam. And then he said, I saw my brother Alvin, who has long since slept. Now, by that he means Alvin had died in 1823, Hmm. uh, just before Moroni had come, but of course, seven years before the church was organized. We've learned historically from sources that at, at the funeral for Alvin, that a that a particular minister who was preaching the funeral sermon intimated very strongly that Alvin had gone to hell because he had not been baptized. Mm. And that had just, it had infuriated Father Smith, but it had hurt the family. And so some 13 years later in this vision, he sees Alvin. But Joseph Smith essentially asked the question every one of us would have asked, well, how can that be inasmuch as he died many years before the priesthood was restored and the church was organized. And, and the answer came to him, and it's recorded in, in our Doctrine and Covenants, as section 137. It's recorded, all those who would have received the gospel if they had been permitted to live on are heirs of the celestial kingdom. Hmm. And so only God knowing hearts. Um, and so that was the beginning of the revelation, what we call a vicarious work. It doesn't actually begin until about 1840. But from that point on, it's been a central teaching of the church, and that's that's one of the major reasons we build temples throughout the world. I want to ask you a very practical question, the notion okay. of um, sealing marriages for eternity. Yeah. Yeah. How do you handle divorce? Is divorce even comprehensible? It is. It is. But I'll have to, I'd have to say this. Uh, and it does take place. In other words, does a temple divorce, is it, is it possible? The answer is yes, yes. Uh, but I would say that statistically speaking, they are so rare when compared with a divorce in civil marriages. And, and I would, accre- I would uh, attribute that, Krista, to the, the belief that this is intended to last forever. And that if, I mean, you know, I... Mm-hmm. I there are reasons for divorce. There are justifiable reasons for divorce. But, but if, I, if I'm driven by the notion that it's my responsibility to care for and love my wife and my children, that, it, that except in cases of abuse or neglect or things that, you know, that, are, that are very personal to people where, they, where divorce seems to be the right course, in, in our case, my wife and I have been married uh, in June. We'll be married 37 years. Mm-hmm. Now, we... Um, we obviously haven't perfected our relationship. We have a wonderful marriage, but, you know, we're two different people. We we decided early that when I came from Louisiana and she came from outside Salt Lake City, we had a mixed marriage. And uh, <laughs> and the foods I loved, she didn't love. And, uh, and the way I talked, she didn't talk that way, and so on and so on. And so we've had to make some major adjustments. And But I'd have to say that even with the most difficult uh, disagreements between us, the concept of divorce just didn't seem to be an option. Not that we couldn't do it. Not that anybody would forbid us. Mm-hmm. It just didn't. It seemed because we were working to establish an eternal family unit that that was something we could work out. 
Is the church, though, I mean, are there parameters for when divorce is forgivable and allowable and understandable? I mean, I would think this would be really difficult because the doctrine is so It is. It would carry us. Eternal. I think I'd have to, I think I'd have to agree with you that it, I won't say, I won't say that it carries a greater stigma, but I probably, I think I would have to say with my experience in working with people, it carries a greater personal stigma. Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A person would perhaps feel a little more guilty, if not a lot more guilty, over the dissolution yeah, the of a celestial marriage. the bar is higher for failure. That's correct. Yes. That's correct. And I think that would cause pain. Mm-hmm. More Obviously, in any divorce is going to bring pain. But, but this would probably bring more because this is, has more eternal implications. But it's not a matter of, yes, there are. There are, there are reasons when a person... Uh, having served as a pastor on you know for 25 or 30 years during the time in my adulthood i would have to say not too many times but there were times when it was clear to me this doesn't seem on this side of 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 uh, the line of mm. of uh, eternity this doesn't seem to me to be solvable fixable mm. and they were both good people they were both fine people but it just the the differences were so irreconcilable that I just didn't see how it could be fixed, and I, I, I wouldn't recommend that they go, get a divorce. But, and it isn't a matter too of of the church or individuals in the church forgiving them. That doesn't come up, you know. Mm. That people know that they're that uh, members of the church know that those things happen, and so. You know, I have to tell you that um, my first experience, and still absolutely the most dramatic experience I've had of a Mormon temple was in East Germany in the 1980s. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and uh, it was... You, you were there then. I was there, and it was it was a temple that was being built to serve Latter-day Saints across Eastern Europe. It was the first yeah. temple in that part of the world. It was a very unusual thing that it was being allowed to be built. And I was covering this temple opening as a journalist. It was not in East Berlin. It was way down in the middle of nowhere in an especially kind of bleak landscape of East (laughs) Germany. And this temple, this white temple rising out of the ground, looked completely (laughs) otherworldly. And when I went there, now aren't there, isn't there a period of, is it 10 days where the temple is open and visitors can come in and then it's closed? Varies by, varies by the temple, but they'll have a period of open house where Uh visitors are welcome to come and, uh, yeah. and see what it's going to be I, like, I think and they'll this explain. Was 10 days, and there were people, there were lines going on for days, because yeah. especially yeah. in that part of the world, it was something so unusual. Yes. Um, and, and, I, and I will also say that, you know, it was, it, was, it was kind of a strange story that the East German government was allowing something like this. Um, and one of the yeah. things that was said is that because... Part a, a tenet of the Mormon faith is um, not only observing high moral standards, but honoring and sustaining the laws of the land. Yeah. Um, and I believe that that the Latter Day Saints in East Germany and in Eastern Europe had agreed to compromise somewhat on their missionary That's activities right. because of this other ver- value of respecting the laws of the land. And I just want to ask you about that. Where does that come from? Um, is that theologically based? Is that a result of Mormon respect, history? Yeah, respect for the laws of the land. Respecting the laws uh-huh. of the land. It actually, you know, it's actually scriptural. Uh, you know, Paul in Romans, what, um, 13, talks about being subject to the powers that be, and that same language is used in some of our scripture. 
Yeah, it's an article of faith. Uh, one of our articles of faith but is But, you know, I'm idea. sure they wouldn't have let Pentecostals build a temple in the Middle East. <laughs> well, you know what we had to do? It really was important. Is we, had to, we had to build a reputation that we were trustworthy and that we would stay within the boundaries of the law. And, and I think, too, we had to convince them that we could help make their people better citizens of their nation. And, and that's one of the things we often speak. The church is very careful in terms of missionary work in particular, but especially with temples, that we never sneak in the back door. We are, we're always going to go through the front door. And if the leaders of the nation say, no, it's not time, we say, that's fine. Hmm. Once we've established the right relationships with the leaders of the nation and can convince them that what we have to bring to their people will make them even better citizens of their community, there's usually an opening, yeah. And I would imagine that that is, um, that is helpful um, as, as the LDS uh, church now you know, expands globally mm-hmm. into many mm-hmm. new kinds of countries. It is. It is. And, um, and, we, and, and you know, they know that we're not going to come in unless we're invited. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we'll work and meet with them and do what we can to try to get that invitation. But... But uh, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, with missionary work in particular, we work with an urgency, but, but with a, a quiet and, and slow steadiness. <laughs> I right. mean, want to get it done, but we're going to do it the right way. Tell me about the importance of missionary work in your faith. And, I mean, I'd really like for you to personalize that. I mean, talk about sure. your experience of this. And also maybe, you know, you've raised six children. Um, yeah, yeah. What this means, what it really means. Where, where were you sent? I was, I was sent to the foreign country of New York City. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> it, was called, it was called then the Eastern States Mission. The headquarters were in New York City on 973 Fifth Avenue. But at that point in time, it reached into, it, it encompassed all of southern New York, it encompassed all of New Jersey, it encompassed all of Connecticut, and it encompassed uh, western Massachusetts. And so it was. It was quite a. There were a lot. It was. A, I think we had the most population of any mission in the world at the time. But um, missionary work is sort of the lifeblood of the church. Um, there's nothing quite so exciting and contagious than a convert. Uh, they 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 love what they have. They appreciate what they have, and they bring uh, they bring an enthusiasm with them that causes all of us to think back of when we first believed. Hmm. And and that and that's just invigorating, and so it, it has very practical benefits. That's one. The other would be it's a tremendously valuable leadership training program. If you can appreciate that, I mean, in my case, I wasn't sent to a foreign country, but my son went to Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, he served in northern Brazil, which was not as established as, say, São Paulo, where the church is very strong, but in northern Brazil in Bahia, and and for him to be able to just walk down the streets and meet people, make appointments. He was a very shy son. He's, you know, he's he's a fun guy, but he's shy. And and just to be able to learn to meet people, greet them, offer them something that matters to you, and teach them, um, that was a, I mean, he will tell you it's one of the great moments in his life as far as is one, cementing him in the faith. You come to love that which you serve. And also in building the capacity. I mean, they had to, they had to know how to, how to conduct 
church meetings. They had to know how to lead the singing. Hmm. They had to know how to play the piano. Now, I would imagine also that you have a lot of experience of being rejected. I mean, be, no question about strangers that. Strangers was something Especially that they had in not New York invited. City. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what is what's that like? I'll tell you what that does for you. Um, it, it builds you emotionally. Um, so that you learn to deal with rejection later in life better. I mean, it, it would be not have been uncommon in New York City when in the days when we could get into hotels, and you can't do that anymore. But in those days, in the, 19, the late 60s, which is when I was there, um, we would go to the top of a, an apartment complex and just go door to door in that complex. We might see one person who would, who would dare open the door. Uh, they weren't sure who we were, and I, and I look back and I can't blame them. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the other hand, we also did things in Central Park. I mean, we'd set up a uh, a panel board of some sort uh, with the name of the church and a few pictures, and, and it was not uncommon. I, I'll tell you what else we did. We don't do this much as a church anymore, but I was only there two days when I was brought by my, my missionary companion to to something I'd never heard of, and it was called a street meeting. And we set up, uh, literally set up, uh, um, like a revival a meeting, a so a soapbox mm-hmm. that we would stand on, and we and then we established it. Try to get a picture for this. Right, it was on the corner of Wall Street and Nassau, <laughs> which means it was right across the street from the stock exchange. Mm. And so we, we'd get there about a quarter to twelve, and at twelve o'clock the bell would go off for lunch, and it had become, I guess, by that time. A, a, a kind of a fun tradition that on Tuesdays the Mormon missionaries were going to be across the street, and it was just astounding to me. I'm probably 200 people would come and just listen hmm. to us preach. Hmm. And when was this? And this would have been 1967, 68. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and you know that was a again that was a stretching experience for me. I mean, I don't have any trouble talking to people now, but I was a rather shy person and. Hmm. Uh, and so to stand and just talk and then have, uh, in some cases, some professional hecklers out there who would uh, uh, throw questions at me, that's a growing experience. And, uh, and I'll tell you what else it does. It causes you to really search your soul and ask hard questions like, do I really believe this stuff? Be- am, am I willing to subject myself to humiliation or, or rejection? A resentment uh, by by other people, and do I do I really believe this? And I think it caused that kind of spiritual introspection to the point where I did a great deal of praying and thinking and pondering and reflecting, and and so th- there are very practical benefits to it. Obviously, we take the great commission of Jesus very seriously to go into all the world. Now, people will frequently ask us, "But why do you why do you go to Christians who already have a church, mm-hmm. who already have a belief?" And uh, why, don't, why don't you just go to the heathen, you know? Right. And there's a practical answer for that. And that is, I've, I've, I've had pastors ask me this, and I've said to them, how large is your congregation? Well, about, about 700. When you look out at that congregation, can you literally tell at one glance who of all those people have truly been converted? Who of all those people have had a personal conversion experience? Who of all those people have been born again? Who of all those people have, in your language, accepted Jesus as their Savior? Do you know in each case? And he said, well, no, of course not. And I said, neither do we. Hmm. And so we approach everyone. 
I, um, we have about 20 minutes left, and I absolutely have 20 minutes more <laughs> to talk to you about, but I want to give you a okay. break. I want to give you, take a think, drink of water. I want to listen to my producers behind the glass. I don't think you'll be able to hear them, but I'll, so I'll be quiet while I'm listening. Okay. And then I'll All come right. back. Okay. Thank you. Now, I do have some other questions, but you guys, if they're, what's on your mind as we... I don't I don't think we'll do that here. But I think we might get that also somewhere else, you know. Yeah. 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 Dr. Millet, are you there? Okay. I am here. Oh, you're Bo- good. Oh, Bob. okay. Thought Bob. <laughs> right. Thought maybe you walked out to get some water. Okay. Um let me just pull out my notes. Um I will say that something that jumped out at me. You mentioned there's been some controversy about um, especially Jews uh, really having trouble with the idea of Jews being um, converted after death. Right. I was quite struck in Mormon, in, in, in Latter-day Saints theology. Um, let's, say, let's say it this way, that, you know, the, the Christian, the fathers of the Christian church um, often interpreted, and Christians have done this through time, interpreted the Hebrew Bible in light of the New Testament. Um, right. But, you know, seeing in, in prophecies in, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, um, uh, the, the story of, of Jesus foretold. But it seems to me that Latter-day Saints theology really takes that a step farther. And I think this is a line from, from your book, just describe, laying out some of the theolo- theology and doctrines, that Latter-day Saints believe that Christian doctrines have been taught and Christian sacraments administered by Christian prophets since the beginning of time, that, in fact... Adam and Eve and Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Isaiah were, were, were Christian prophets, and that's that's a that's a pretty stunning um, interpretation, I think. It is. It, it, it causes you to look at the Old Testament in a totally different way. Yeah. That they weren't just prophesying of, but that the principal element of their of their ministry was the testimony of Jesus. And is this something? Is this, this would have come from Joseph Smith, yeah. That came from Joseph but, but, Smith. But, but occasional, occasional uh, allusions to it. Paul saying Abraham had the gospel. No, what mm-hmm. is he in Galatians three? What does he mean? I mean, had the gospel. You know, well, he had the truth. Yeah, uh, he worshipped the true God. Yeah, but that doesn't seem to be what Paul's talking about. So I, I, yeah, but that is that would have been one of the very first things to come out of the Book of Mormon 
it's this notion. I, I, I sat with some Southern Baptist Convention leaders some years ago, and they said, yeah, we've read the Book of Mormon. The problem with your Book of Mormon, it's got too much Jesus in it. And I said, well, <laughs> why, does, why would that trouble you? And they said, well, you got too much Jesus before Jesus. Hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, you do have lots of dialogue going on with other kinds of Christians and with evangelicals. I wonder, if, if, are there Jewish Mormon dialogues? Because I could imagine that this would be um Not as, oh, I think it, I, we've had some. But um, not too much. Um, I'm having more and more people say, I was with Richard Newhouse not too long ago, and he made the statement to me that we really do. He commended me for the work I'd done with Rich and with the evangelicals Mm -hmm. and said how excited he was. He said, now, when do you plan to start doing this with Roman Catholics? Right. (laughs) I said, it has to be done. I just need to uh, raise up a few successors right now. I said, I'm I'm pretty busy trying to keep up with evangelicals, yeah. but uh, but but it has to be done. And of course, we want to do it with our our Jewish friends, and for that matter, our Muslim friends. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think there's there's a greater openness in the church now than ever before to this kind of thing. Uh, I, I I've been doing it for ten years, and I've received just keep at it. It's good. We need more friendships. I think uh, my producer's asking, would you move closer to the microphone? Is that right? Keep Stay Man. close to the microphone. Okay. Got Much it. as you were before. Um, right. And, oh, gosh, I had a question and just flew out of my mind. Um, it's old age. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Don't. My eyes are going to. I'm over 45. It's all over. I know. I know. <laughs> um, I know what I want to ask you. You know, so I wonder, I mean, part of the idea that, that Joseph Smith presented that was pretty radical was that um, revelation was still happening. Um, The canon canon. was closed, Mm -hmm. and yet the canon was perhaps not not fixed. It's been added to, and he did his, in Mm -hmm. fact, some of his own translation of the Bible. Um, And, you know, I think a minute ago when we were talking about you mentioned some ideas that that are in Mormon teaching and doctrine, and yet and yet not much is really understood about them. Yeah. Um, I wonder, you know, is revelation still happening? And are there teachings that, that, that stop making sense at times? Um, or are there new ideas that arise that haven't been very, there historically? Uh, it's a very good question, and I think that would make for a profitable discussion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think there is something. I, I, are we on? Yeah, we're on. We're talking, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> um, in recent years, there's been a there's been an effort to to try to solidify and codify, if you will, what actually constitutes Latter Day Saint doctrine, um, and and that's caused us to ask hard questions like this: um, Is everything that was ever uttered by a church leader on a general level? from the days of Joseph Smith, is that considered the doctrine of the church? Mm-hmm. And and the answer has come back, no. I'll give you an illustration. Um, at the time, the Da Vinci Code was very hot and uh, and a little controversy <laughs> raged over it. Yes. Uh, which, by the way, loved, I love the book and, yeah. and I love the movie. Yeah. But uh, I understand people's concerns. But at the time it was raging, the church in, uh, issued a very brief but insightful statement that I was appreciative for. The it Church of the Latter-day this, Saints. That's right. Mm-hmm. The Latter-day Saint leaders issued this statement. It just said, uh, essentially, um, 
The scriptures are silent as to whether Jesus was married. It is true that early church leaders may have offered their opinion on this matter, but those opinions did not then, nor do they now, constitute the doctrine of the church. Hmm. Now, that's a statement that's very important because what it establishes is while Latter-day Saints revere and honor and respect and uphold their church leaders, especially the first presidency of the church and the, and the Twelve Apostles, we do not believe in a form of, of prophetic infallibility. And, uh, and so we, as, we, as we move into the 21st century now, and as we begin having a greater focus upon Christ and Christianity and Christian principles, mm-hmm. I think there's a tendency to look back and say, all right, what are the central saving doctrines? And what are some other things we, A, don't know much about, B, just don't seem to be in harmony with what, with what and where we are now? And, and I think that's taking place more and more. Well, you're, of course, also in an unusual position because you are really a relatively, a very young tradition. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And also, I mean, I you know, would like to talk a little bit about the person of Joseph Smith. I mean, the truth is we can know a lot more about him than we That's can right. know about other people in history who ha- are called prophets. That's um, right. And, uh, you know, I know that he, that there's some sense of, and I really don't want to spend much time about this because I think it's all, you know, there's, it's all speculation and, and I, I'm much more interested in this kind of spiritual and theological conversation. But, you know, I know that there's some sense that he reported revelations and the stories sometimes changed when he told them at different times. And then I think maybe um, more um, on a practical level, there's there's the book of Abraham, which he right. had said that he translated, translated from some Egyptian papyri that were found inside a mummy. Um, and then later, you know, several generations later, when scholars could could really translate from the Egyptian and learn, translate hieroglyph, hieroglyphs, they said that these were f- funeral documents and not a lost book of Abraham. So I, I want to ask, you know, as a very faithful member of the church and a scholar of the church, you know, how do you how do you make sense of this kind of contradiction? Well, that's a good question. I I, I guess I guess this way. Um, I, I attend to the text, let's say, of the book of Abraham very carefully. I know something about its historical beginnings, and I know the story of the coming of the book of Abraham. And I'm very much aware of what uh, present-day Egyptologists uh, make of, of uh, the, the few pieces of papyrus that we have remaining, namely uh, 11 little papyrus fragments. Um, I guess this is the side of me that... Um, that it that this is this is the stubborn side of me that is prone to say, yeah, I have questions about the historicity in terms of how how it came. He didn't tell us uh, how exactly this happened, how he got the information. I mean, you know, scholars even within the church have taken different views. One one view is that he literally translated it from Aber, from uh, Egyptian. Uh, another view, uh, perhaps, is that the. Egyptian papyri that he had proved as a kind of spiritual catalyst to receiving an independent revelation about the ancient figure of Abraham. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is on that, and I and I and I'm as eager to learn about that as as the critics of the church or are, are, are just curious investigators so of the church. You're waiting are. for further revelation, in other words. Yeah, really, in that mm-hmm. sense, and, and 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 my attitude toward this is one of 
um, I, I heard a church leader not long ago say this, which is very simple, but it has a profound implication for me. He said, faith is just so much more than a feeling. Faith is a decision. And I think that's right for me. Um, I made a decision a long time ago about Joseph Smith, fully aware now, maybe more so now as a professor for the last 25 years, than I ever was as a young person, fully aware that he was a human being, that he made mistakes. But I made a decision back then that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and that the work he set in motion was divinely inspired and that what I was about was good and that it would bless my life and bless other lives. And and I'm just I've just sort of taken the stance of I I just will not allow my faith to be held hostage by what the things I do know to be held hostage by what science has or has not discovered at a given moment in time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That to me is a, it may sound naive and it may sound uh, weak, but but that that's the faith part of me saying. Well, of course I look forward to archaeological evidences of the Book of Mormon. Of course I look forward to substantiations of the translation of the Book of Abraham, and so on. Well, let me, but, let me just, yeah, go on. No, go on, I'm done. No, 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 you, I think you were going but I, but I, but I to. But I will, for the time being, put on the shelf the things I don't know, because there are just too many things that I'm, I'm convinced of, and, and that the way of life that the Church promotes um, highlights to me. In other mm. words, would I, would I want to go another way? Uh, I wouldn't. I'm asked this all the time in my evangelical LDS dialogues. Have you ever given any thought to becoming evangelical? Well, I have great admiration for my evangelical friends, have tremendous uh, feelings of appreciation for what they believe and why, but it's never crossed my mind to, to be other than Latter-day Saint. You know, let me put the question this way. I mean, if one reads accounts of Joseph Smith and, and, you know, there's a lot of turbulence and turmoil, which also had to do with the times in which he was living mm-hmm. and, and the path right. he chose and the turmoil and turbulence that that created. Um, but even, you know, it seems to be, you know, there's there's a lot of personal drama. You know, there is the the polygamy, um, the development of polygamy within the tradition. There's, you know, it's a it's a chaotic uh picture that you get, um, especially, I think, if you just read it as historical details rather than through the lens of faith. You know, if someone yes. doesn't yes. see Joseph Smith as a prophet, then you read it as a as a fairly chaotic story. But, yes. but that picture, you know, could not stand in greater contrast to the picture that um, Mormons, Latter-day Saints, of, of the picture that people have of Mormon families, um, of Mormon communities, right? This this community that you described, well, I, being, this think, way of life. I think that's right. And so, I, you know, I guess I wonder, is there something that happens um, in a religious experience, in this religious experience, where the lived religion somehow transcends this person, you know, of Joseph Smith, who, who gave rise to it? Very good question. I, I don't think in the fullest sense we can ever transcend Joseph Smith uh, or consider him to be a valued personality, but now we'll move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you'll see that among believers in the faith because there are too many other things that came from him that, that, that are the reasons why we do what we do and we are what we are. That there are unanswered questions, to be sure. That there are 
that there are things that I'm as anxious as the next guy to learn more detail on. I really want to know. But uh, in in the interim, in the interim, it uh, it really doesn't doesn't trouble me. Um, we're we're at the we're at the we're in the religion making business, as you intimated earlier. Uh, <laughs> Only for a short time. I mean, uh, compared to the Christian Church, which has been at this for a couple of millennia, mm-hmm. we're, we're about halfway to Nicaea, and so, <laughs> <laughs> and and so in that sense, I, I remember a very tender moment. I was speaking with. Uh, I'd been invited to the Salt Lake Theological Seminary, basically an evangelical seminary, to discuss a book I had done um, on Jesus, and they had read it, and they wanted me to come and just respond to questions. And it was, a, it was a very enjoyable couple of hours. The very last question that was asked by one of my friends there was this one. He said, Bob, what can we do for you? Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't ready for that question. I said, what do you mean? He said, what can we as evangelicals do for our Mormon friends? It was very tender, and, and, I, and I, I guess my mind could have gone a hundred different ways, but what I came back with was this. I said, Boy, I appreciate you asking that. I don't think I've ever been asked that. <laughs> but but I said, try this. Cut us a little slack, will you? Give us a little time. Hmm. Uh, we're in the religion-making business, and this takes time. It takes centuries. And, and, and trying to explain the faith and articulate the faith, that hasn't come overnight. We've really only been about that for 20 or 30 years. Hmm. And so... Um, Give us, cut us a little slack. There'll be times when you'll have questions I won't have a a wonderfully formulated answer for. But I often say to my friends, give me a couple of three days and I'll get back with you. <laughs> uh, and I'll think it through. I, as I've said in, in, in this whole business of outreach and interfaith relations, I've le- learned a ton about, in my case, Christian history, Christian theology in the last decade. But Krista, I've learned half a ton about Mormonism. Yeah. Um, because you cannot help but better understand your faith when you engage others who either disagree with you or take a different slant. And I want to ask you, I mean, you have, in fact, been involved in all kinds of dialogues between uh, evangelical Christians and other kinds of Christians mm-hmm. and your church mm-hmm. for a long time. But it was when Mitt Romney um, began to run for president uh, that... This issue came up, um, you know, are Mormons Christian? Are they really right. Christian? Right. Is that really, I mean, I, I, that is, um, that question is interesting and important when viewed from, from some perspectives in our culture and in our political right. culture in the early 21st century. Um, I wonder if that question is really important and interesting to you or to most Mormons. Well, you're right. Whereas it used to be offensive to me, it is now an important question, and I'll say why it is. And that's because when someone says, well, you know the Mormons, they're not Christian, I'm not too worried about what the theologians are thinking, or in many cases what the pastors or ministers or priests are thinking, because I think their definition of what constitutes a Christian has either historical or theological baggage associated with it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For them, it means the Mormons cannot be either put into the package of Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant, or it means... um, you do not subscribe to the post-New Testament creeds of Christianity. Right. 
or you believe in additional scripture. I, I, I know where they're coming from. The greatest worry I have when I hear that statement, Krista, is not, is not for the theologians. It's for the man or the woman in the pew, the man or the woman on the street who hears that and says, oh, well, that must mean that they don't believe in the New Testament. Or it must, it must be the case that they don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. Or maybe they don't believe there was an atonement necessary or that the resurrection was real. And all of that would be false, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when people use this kind of language with me, you know, you worship a different Jesus, that's when I really push the issue because I say, now, do you mean that our Jesus was born in Chicago or that our Jesus died in Los Angeles of, <laughs> of uh, over, you know, just died of old age? I mean, what, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And, and what I require them after a time to say is, no, obviously, clearly we worship the same historical Jesus born in Bethlehem, dies under the hands of, of Pontius Pilate. So, so that part we clarify. To say, though, that there are differences theologically between our view of Jesus, well, of course there are. Mm-hmm. Of course there are, and we have no problem with that. So, you know, we've been talking, speaking a, a lot about theology this hour and a half, which has gone very quickly. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of want to cl- close in a different place, and I, and I just want to ask you if, you, if you were just asked by someone to talk about the spiritual core of what it means to you to be part of the Latter-day Saints. I mean, what... Mm-hmm. What are the contours of your spiritual life as a practicing Mormon? What is what are the, the really important live, lived elements of your lived faith? Well, I think I think the things that 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 matter to the me, me the most after I move beyond, and you never move beyond, but after I sort of move beyond the central core, which is Christ and Him crucified. Once I get beyond that and begin to talk about the more peripheral areas of my life, I, I begin to say. It matters to me a great deal to have some feel for where I came from and for why I'm here and where I'm going after this life. It matters very much for me as I as I associate not only now with my children but now with my grandchildren that I have a concept of family that uh, spans the veil of death and that I that I really intend to see them again one day and to be with them again one day. Mm. And that my my that that and that the stuff I have believed in since I was eight years old is uh, has very practical meaning to me in terms of how I live my life now and how I hope to live my life in a world to come. Uh, it, it it dictates to me not only how I respect and admire and treat my wife, but it dictates to me how I treat the woman or the man on the street. Uh, I, I, I feel like I have a sense of responsibility to be as as uh, gentle and kind and, in my case, Christian as possible. It's, it's the man I met one day who introduced himself to me, and I said, and what do you do? He said, I'm an ordained plumber. <laughs> I said, what in the world is an ordained plumber? He said, well, I'm a Christian, and I'm a plumber, but I feel a sense of obligation as a plumber to just make people's days better and to help them have a happy day. And I thought, you know, that's delightful. And that's a way in which his religion impinges upon very directly the way he treats other people. And so um, to me, if, you're, if you want to talk about Christianity or what it stands for, you have to look carefully at what it produces in people mm-hmm. and, and what it makes of people. And if, if I'm a Christian or claim to be a Christian, but I treat people in ugly, mean, and and uh, unkind ways, 
then I really am doing a lot of talking the talk, but I'm not walking the walk. And so my, my religion for me not only sets forth my theology, but it sets forth my practical daily living in terms of how I treat other people and how I come to love them. And uh, whether they feel the same way about ultimate and eternal things that I do or not. Hmm. Well, that's a great last word. Um, thank you so much. I feel like we did cover a lot of ground. We did. Um, and I'm just glad that we finally had this conversation. Well, thank you, Christy. It was a delight for me to be on your program. Great. And we will, um, we will, I know this is going to be in the, after the new year before we um, put this on the air. Who have you been talking to? Rob? Hmm? Shiraz? No. Shiraz? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So mm-hmm. Shiraz will be um, in touch with you and let you know when you know when we're going to produce this. And we may have some okay. other questions, which you can ask by email. But um, okay. we might have some questions about music, for example. Oh, yeah. oh that's, that's yeah. an interesting because area. Because we like to... Um, I don't know if you've heard the show. I'd love to send you some shows if you haven't. I could send would you, some you do CDs. that? Yeah, I, I was, I would I was just telling to... my friend here in the booth. I said, "Yeah, I've read her book, but I've never heard her program." Yeah, you know, I'd love to send you actually the program we're doing for Christmas with Jean Vanier. Have you ever heard of him? He started the Larch no. Communities, community centered around people with mental disabilities. Well, this is where uh, where uh, Henry Nowen went. Nowen went. Yes. Yeah. I'd love to send you that one. That's just what we're just in the thick of producing. Oh, I'd love to see it. Okay. I, yeah, please yeah, send I'll me send some examples. you something so you can hear that we, we bring I've, music I've, in and we try to kind of evoke the many layers of this part of life, which is not well, just Well, music is a fascinating part of Mormonism. It really right, is, it is. So, yeah, we might ask for your input on that. That'd be great. Okay. Well, I wish you um, a blessed Christmas. And, you uh, too. And thank you again. My pleasure. I hope we, get, we talk again sometime. Yeah, me too. Bye-bye. Oh, bye-bye.